Hello, this is Mark from the Distant Future. Welcome to Future Flying. A quick note before we begin this episode. This is one of our first episodes, and when we launched our podcast, we named it Cleared for Takeoff. Now, we had thought we had done a good amount of due diligence on the name. While there have been other aviation podcasts named Cleared for Takeoff, we couldn't find any currently active ones, at least in the English language, so we felt we had a good name for our show. Unfortunately, a couple months later, we discovered that there is indeed another English-language aviation podcast named Cleared for Takeoff in current production. And in fact, it's produced by our good friends at the FAA. Not wanting to trample on their name, we decided it best to take a month hiatus and retool our show, hence our new name, Future Flying. Aside from this welcome message, none of the rest of the episode has been edited, so you'll hear us refer to our podcast as Cleared for Takeoff throughout the rest of this show. Just note that you are indeed listening to Future Flying. Enjoy! In this episode, we talk about urban air mobility and how it just may change the world. Welcome to Cleared for Takeoff. I'm your host, Mark Roboff. This is an aviation podcast really designed for aviation professionals, aviation hobbyists, anyone who's enthusiastic about the world of aviation and aerospace. And I'm joined by a a really talented team today I'm going to introduce and then really a very, very special guest who uh, will be kicking off with us, uh, Dr. PK from NASA. Thank you. But before we get to Dr. PK, it's my pleasure to introduce Martin Whitfield, Ravi Rajamani, and Corey Laughlin, my co-hosts. Martin, you want to give a quick shout out? Hello, thank you, Mark. Yes, this is Martin Whitfield. Uh, I've been uh, in aviation since uh, a wee boy, or at least fascinated by aviation for a long time. Um, aeronautical engineer and uh, recently uh, become uh, the an account executive with SAP in the aerospace and defense uh, industry, helping our aerospace and defense clients uh, do their digital transformation. In my spare time, I, I also chair the SAE Digital Data Steering Group, which its remit is to um, identify new technologies that might be able to be leveraged and figure out what standards we need to develop to leverage the new technologies in aerospace. So um, with that and my um, other hobby being a private pilot, um, pretty much everything I seem to do waking hour is uh, aerospace related. So thanks uh, for the opportunity to uh, talk with you today, PK. Hey, Ravi. How do you introduce yourself? Hey, thanks a lot, Mark. Uh, I'm really excited to be joining you and Corey and Martin and also PK on this inaugural edition of the podcast. Uh, I have worked in the aerospace industry for the past uh, nearly 30 years at companies you may have heard of, like Pratt & Whitney and GE. Uh, I think I was attracted to this uh, field, partly because of my father, who was an aviator. He was a navigator in the Indian Air Force. And now, after all those, I'm now a consultant. Uh, I, I have been working for more than 15 years also in the standards uh, field. I've been developing standards, aerospace standards with uh, different ASA technical committees. 
Thanks for inviting me, uh, Mark. And I'm really happy to participate in Cleared for Takeoff. Oh, there we go. We're really happy to have you, Ravi. And thank you for joining. Um, and last but not least, Corey Laughlin. Hi, uh, my name is Corey Laughlin. I am the engineering specialist for system safety and development assurance for advanced design at Textron Aviation. Uh, I grew up a space race kid. My, uh, I just want to say my problem, my professional highlight at this point was uh, shaking hands with Joe Engel, who's from Chapman, Kansas, which is only a stone's throw away from Clay Center, Kansas, where I was born. So uh, I'm having transitioned into uh, the system safety aspect of things in, in commercial aviation. And I'm really, really interested to see, to be on this, uh, on the leading edge of where AI can go and uh, make this great industry even better. Welcome all. And a little bit about me beyond being your humble host of this podcast. I am the GM for aerospace transformation at DXC Technology. Um, Critically, however, I run the SAE G34 committee, and you've heard Martin also talk about SAE. Uh, SAE is a century-old industry standards body. They develop and (laughs) promote uh, industry standards in automotive, in aerospace, and in commercial vehicles. And SAE G34 is really a very, very important critical effort to our industry. Um, my background is in AI and AI-related technologies. And one of the things that uh, I think we all recognize is that AI as an artificial intelligence is going to be disruptively transformative to aviation. IASA, or the European Aviation Safety Administration, has called AI the third great technical revolution uh, to send upon our industry. Um, does anyone have an idea of what the first great technical revolution was? Of course, after yeah, the the Wright brothers, according to EASA. I'd assume jet engine. Bingo. So they say jet engines. Does anyone know the second time frame? Nineteen eighties. Maybe they'll give it away. I'm I'm going to guess fly by wire. That's what they say. So we are heralding in the third technical revolution for aviation since the jet engine and fly-by-wire uh, technology. And 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 what we're what we're focused on the particular challenge that we're solving in our day jobs is how do we devise a means of compliance for the certification of AI so that it can be used in safety critical systems on board the aircraft. Today, AI is is really very important to aviation. It's used in aviation, but it's relegated to the IT data center or to the cloud, right? And that really limits its applications. We see self-driving cars pop up all over the place. I was actually behind a self-driving car driving to the post office in Irvine last week. But right, we're we're far away from the from the self-flying airplane, not because the technology is not here, but because we have to have a industry standard way to, uh, as we say, build confidence in its safety and to assess its safety. Right. And that's what certification is all about. How can we prove the system we build can operate in a safe and, and, and trusted manner? So we're going to be talking about AI, uh, but but we're not uh, just going to be an AI podcast. This is going to be a podcast that's focused on all matters of technical innovation, technical transformation, and, and ultimately technical disruption in aviation, the industry that we're all deeply passionate and have loved all of our lives. And uh, you know, I, the, the way we see this going about, we're going to be releasing these episodes on a monthly basis. And each episode is going to have about an interview with a distinguished guest, and then we'll have a banter. 
Um, and uh, for today's distinguished guest, uh, Martin and I will be conducting the interview, and then Corey and uh, Ravi will be joining all of us for some really great banter, and we'll see how long we go. Uh, it is my sincere pleasure and sincere honor, uh, most of all, to announce our first guest, our kickoff guest, is Dr. PK, a... AIAA fellow and NASA's engineer of the year. That is quite a feat. PK is the director of the Aeronautical Research Institute at NASA. Welcome, PK. We're really, really very, very glad to have you. Um, and I was uh, thinking maybe we could kick things off uh, if you would describe with us what a director of the Aeronautical Research Institute does. And I'll kick it off to Martin to ask some other questions. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me at Cleared for Takeoff. I'm really pleased to be the startup speaker here. Um, that's quite a bit of honor. Um, so I appreciate uh, your invitation and appreciate NASA representation on your podcast. So thank you. So your first question is, what does um, director of NASA Aeronautics Research Institute do? So if you look at the NASA Aeronautics Research Institute or NARI, its charter is to identify and explore areas that we haven't yet looked at, identify technical concepts or some domains as well as potential partnerships and collaborations that we, we, we as NASA Aeronautics Research Mission Directorate should explore further. So we are looking at um, different levels of autonomy. Of course, we look at uh, supply chain management type concepts. We are also exploring some areas related to advanced air mobility. And we run work groups where we bring collaborators together. We form some new partnerships in the areas of autonomy and such. So we, typically we look at areas that are not quite yet mainstream in the aeronautics portfolio. We are sort of looking at the bleeding edge ideas or areas that we should consider for further exploration. So it's quite an exciting job. A number of us are familiar with the work you guys do and, and are very grateful for it. It really is uh, industry-defining. Um, an area I'm, I'm curious, so you know, part of what we're working on when we work on AI <laughs> is use case consideration. And I think we think that autonomy is a flagship use case for AI. It's certainly an orienting one. One thing that I've been pushing for in my conversations that I've had with uh, various UAM and UTM systems providers for as we explore commercial use cases is firefighter drones, right? So uh, you and I both live in California. You're in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. And uh, I was uh, just evacuated Monday from my home because of a, a new forest fire that emerged very quickly thanks to Santa Ana winds. When uh, you know you have uh, stable conditions, it's 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 not difficult to fly aircraft to help put out the forest fire. But when you have these wind conditions, it basically immediately grounds aircraft and makes the firefighting much more challenging. We had, I think, one tanker drop a package of retardant around eight in the morning. And then for the rest of the day, Monday and into most of Tuesday, aircraft were grounded. Do you see AI being able to drive a, a, a forest fire a fighter mission? And, and do you see AI being able to navigate in types of conditions that 
uh, humans today would be very hard pressed to do? Yeah, I, I think it's a great question, and it's very timely as you personally experienced in many parts of California and now Colorado. And we do think that AI has a role in machine learning as well as autonomous systems has a role in addressing these needs. So if you look at currently how the firefighting occurs from the aircraft, they fly only under visual conditions. They had to have visibility that is clear to them where they are flying. The winds have to be tolerable. So sometimes they can only fly in one direction and they cannot fly in the nighttime conditions. So there are a lot of restrictions on flying. And that's largely because as a human on board, so you are trying to also protect the pilot and the pilot's life. Now you change that paradigm and say, let's put autonomous system sensors that can see through smoke and, and such, and you can pin down where exactly the fires are. So you're able to, then you're able to fly 24 seven pretty much. So you increase your capacity to fight and, and 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 continue the basically the fighting mission and all the time that increases you know your ability to fight the fires you can also detect them better through machine learning type applications where you have certain types of heat um, and uh, temperature conditions as well as the winds and environmental conditions that that allows that basically delicate combination that increases the risk so not only you are doing better detection, prognostics, but you're also able to fight it better and con on a continuous basis. Uh, one of the things that they can do is go very low. And what happens is when the winds are high, if you drop the retardant, the retardant just flies away. So instead you might be able to pin down exactly how to package the retardant in a way in a box or some, some way, shape or form or balloons that it can go at the lower altitudes and then burst so that the dispersion is more effective. There are a number of techniques that can be used and a lot of that based on the data and ability to base, synthesize the information uh, in, a, in a way that will continue the missions and increase the resiliency of fighting. So I think the AI, ML, as well as autonomy, all the combination of these three things have a really strong role in helping with this kind of situations. It seems to me like it is it is such a, a slam dunk use case, a use case that will enable uh, a tremendous societal good, uh, a use case that is needed urgently. But before we go any further into the meat of, of what we're all here to talk about, I wanted to make sure we have a, a little bit to understand your past and, and, and to really look at you know, how you've shaped the industry and, and how the industry shaped you and, and what shaped you most, most critically to join aerospace and become the, the, the leader you've been. So I'm going to turn things over to my uh, dear friend Martin here uh, to take us through a little history. Well, thank you, Mark. So, uh, PK, to echo Mark's comments earlier, it's a, a privilege to have you on. Um, and uh, certainly your, uh, your current role as director at NASA Aeronautics Research Institute and what you described, uh, your responsibilities are, seem to dovetail very nicely into what Mark and uh, the DDSG and uh, then other standard committees at SAE are looking to do. So um, hopefully this won't be the last time that we're talking. 
would love you to uh, just describe to our listeners a little bit about your background, uh, where you started, what brought you into the field of uh, aeronautics and uh, help us understand how, how you become the director of uh, a, a NASA research institute. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that. Uh, so I started uh, looking for a PhD dissertation topic. Now, this was in 1993. And I was in industrial engineering department at University of Cincinnati. At the time, I wasn't quite happy with the conventional topics that were out there. So I I went and attended a bunch of conferences. In one of the conferences, I heard a talk from one of the FAA researchers who discussed the complexities of air traffic management, you know, number of aircraft, number of pilots, number of controllers. 76,000 pieces of equipment and lots of facilities. So that kind of got me really excited that it is a very complex environment with humans and machines. Um, And so I like, I kind of resonate towards usually complex problems, one that needs significant um, attention to scalability needs. So that's what got me really interested in that. So I found, I applied to a number of jobs. At the time, I was not a U.S. citizen, so I couldn't get a job with FAA. So I applied to FAA contractor, and, and then I finally found a job where I could work half-time on my PhD dissertation and half-time with the company so I could pay my bills. But FAA also allowed me to actually share the data because it was a FAA contracting company. I was able to collaborate with the FAA researchers and conduct my research. So that was very exciting to me, and that got me hooked. After that, uh, they gave me a job. After I became a citizen, then FAA hired me, and they sent me to NASA, and uh, that was 2002. In 2004, I got hired by NASA. I, All the while, I continued my passion towards improving aerospace operations, reducing delays, increasing capacity, and so on and so forth. So. That's been my basically uh, journey for, you know, since 1993 and I haven't changed that domain that I really care about in air, air traffic management. Along the way, I sort of discovered uh, in my own head that low, the drones are going to come and we need a different way of organizing them and managing them because the conventional air traffic management system will not be able to support the scale. And that's how we st- I started working on this unmanned aircraft system traffic management, UTM. Now, fortunately, it's been accepted uh, uh, all over the globe as one of the main methods of accepting and allowing large-scale drone operations, small drone operations below 400 feet. Then we started to build on that for urban air mobility. Then we started to build on that for Upper E, which is 60,000 feet and up, you know, where there will be uh, long endurance um, UAVs as well as balloons and supersonic and other types of vehicles. So our journey of UTM just kind of continued, but basically it's all revolving around airspace operations. And off late, I started to also worry about last couple of years, I started to worry about expand the scope to look at the scalability issues. And instead of just looking at airspace operations, I started to look at aviation operations. And then you quickly realize that supply chain is another bottleneck in the aviation system for many, many types of aircraft. So I'm now also paying attention to the supply chain related issues and 
needs and figuring out how we can contribute to reducing the logjam and the bottleneck related to supply chain. So I, I deeply care about the airspace operations, the supply chain autonomy happens to be one of the things that supports the aircraft size as well as airspace operations side. And the job that we have, I have currently the role NASA Aeronautics Research Institute director, and that allows me to explore these areas and figure out what is the right thing to do, bring communities of interest together, get their feedback and buy-in and understand how we can collaborate with industry as well as organizations like SAE and Academia and other government agencies like FAA and Department of Commerce, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, so that we can offer unified uh, solution sets to reduce the friction for industry to scale. Well, certainly that vision resonates uh, with me and I'm, I'm sure it does with Mark too. And the fact you're looking at a number of uh, uh, different areas sort of tie back to, you know, your um, optimization of uh, uh, complex environments that you were most probably taught at uh, a university in industrial uh, engineering. So um, there, there, there seems to be a, um, a good engineering thread through throughout all of that, which is fantastic. Just going back a bit, maybe uh, picking up uh, on your um, your background, when you uh, sort of started out, were there any um, individuals uh, that uh, you know helped guide you or inspired you to become a, uh, a move into industry engineering? And uh, uh, are there people today who you, you still uh, you know look up to as mentors that uh, have helped bring you into the aerospace industry at all? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. So just to brief my family history, my grandfather was a freedom fighter. My father was civil engineer. He's you know, retired now. Um, my mother's um, brothers, uh, she, had, she had four brothers. All of them were engineers. So engineering was somewhat in our kind of system, in our family. And that was kind of a logical thing for me. Uh, as I was completing uh, my high school, so that was that's how I migrated into engineering, and then I wanted to come to United States for further education. Uh, now, what I really get excited also about is the future promise. So the saying is that one mile of road takes you only one mile, but one mile of aviation land can take you anywhere. If you extrapolate that further and you say, now we have the quieter electric propulsion and more drones, more electric vertical takeoff landing vehicles that can go in the areas which has not been reached by aviation before, you can now start to see how that could transform the society at large. The businesses and, 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 and your living style could completely change. In today's world, what happens is you tend to optimize your living and business locations, or at least one of the factors in selecting the business and, and your living location is access to transportation. Are you near the highways? Are you near road? Are you near metro? Or businesses sometimes had to locate near metro so they could get the employees there. Now, that also causes more congestion. That's why you see in the urban city centers, there's lots of businesses together. But with the new aviation, the electric propulsion and such, you can now go where people want to live or where the businesses want to reside. 
If that happens, you can see that you you no longer have to basically just congest everything into centers, but you can distribute them. You can have much more integrated greener spaces and living spaces and businesses. That changes the way we live and experience the the nature. Whole thing could change if we are successful in this uh, electric propulsion and the new aviation and the drones reaching to you and giving you services and goods that are necessary, then that changes the game. Instead of you optimizing or you considering your living and location based on transportation, the transportation comes to you. And that that's a very, very powerful possibility to transform our standard of living. That's something I've thought a lot about too, right? Where, where you go to um, a conference like Uber Elevate, right? It, it's always been telling that uh, a lot of urban air mobility presentations, particularly presentations to a wider audience that talk about what this is all about, look at Sao Paulo or uh, most critically Los Angeles as sort of the field for this. And I think Uber announced this year that uh, they're going to actually uh begin proof of concepts in LA and Dallas, right? And it makes sense because here I live in Southern California, originally from New York, live in Southern California. And, uh, you know, I could, I could understand immediately the appeal of having a new form of transportation that would allow me to fly above the 405. But then I also, I mean, you look at a, a city like Tokyo or most cities in Japan that uh, have, have built very purposely around uh, core transportation infrastructure. And, and a question then becomes to me, I mean, do you see, do you see urban air mobility transforming all types of cities or, or just sort of more, uh, sprawl type of cities. How do you how do you see urban air mobility transforming those type of cities that already have you know an arguably very efficient transportation model like London or Tokyo? Yeah. So clearly, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that we will get ever get rid of metro and roads right away or anything like that. Uh, uh, that is still uh, the metro and such is a good public transportation where public transportation is needed. However, what it can do is new businesses coming and locating and adding on top of previous businesses right next to the metro or having taller and taller buildings, you might be able to start to distribute the new growth would can come from outside rather than keep growing. I mean, now you see that there's not much room to grow mm-hmm. in the New York, Manhattan. Like how much can you grow there other than going vertical? Um, but if you are able to say, hey, I, I, I can get you the in same amount of time or less amount of time to some other place, you just have to use different mode of transportation mm-hmm. that's equally affordable and safe and, and such, and society will accept it then you can change that dynamic completely. And I think uh, there's going to be a slow combination. You know, slowly you can start to basically digest that and, and spread it over. In a way, that's kind of how the suburbs started to form, you know. So now this will take to the other next level of, of spreading out a little bit, if you will, you know. 
And I can see there's a lot of benefit just even before we get to this new world of uh, new forms of transportation. We talked about hybrid propulsion. John Wayne, which is one of my favorite airports in the in the country, would be a, a great launching pad. And lo and behold, you know, until COVID, I would say that for at least 75% of my flights, I just have to hightail it up to LAX. And that's because with John Wayne, you know, a 5,000 foot runway and you have very strict noise abatement requirements because right after the 5,000 foot runway, you have these mansions in Newport Beach with big pools in their backyards and people who are very, very sensitive to jet engine noise. I can imagine how new forms of propulsion can transform airports like that, making them far more useful than they are today. Maybe even getting rid of things like curfews where you you can have planes coming in from much further afield and at more uh, times of the day because they're not disrupting the neighborhood around them. Yeah, and the great thing about electric propulsion is uh, you don't need the same landing runway length because um, runway length partly depends on how much weight you're carrying. And when you're fully loaded, you're heavier. Electric propulsion, the batteries, the weight is same whether they are charged or discharged. So the that could change in a way, complete dynamics where you might be able to use a lot of these smaller airports with shorter runways. Uh, and as long as you're quiet and able to land and take off, you, you don't need as, as a long runway as you would otherwise. So it's a, that that prospect of being able to to somewhat unleash that capacity that exists is really promising. Um, I'll give an example. In in the summer, we had number of students uh, interns, and we were fascinated by the farmers, the challenge that the farmers have, were having. They were not finding people to work, so they were throwing food away. At the same time. We had food banks that were uh, in overdrive. They needed much more food because of people that had lost jobs and such. So what our students did is we built a portal and we, we worked with Angel Flight and we connected the farmers to food banks. And we used uh, these smaller towns where the runways were closer to the farms. and had uh, about 200 plus boxes of food, 30 some flights were delivered. Uh, and that, you can just imagine if we can repeat that in every every day, all day, into different parts of country, that will change the game. We, we will increase the supply chain efficiency significantly. The food will be fresh. A lot of times these days you had to harvest food earlier on Looking at the commute time, the truckers need number of days, so you had to harvest it earlier than it's ideal. Uh, but if we are able to actually use aviation to transport these goods, um, particularly the food, that could change the way we experience that, and uh, it would reach a lot easier and and farther, you know, and faster. Uh, and, and and meet the needs of the society. It's, it's got a, a really good prospect uh, of, of this quieter aviation, the smaller, medium-sized aircraft. Well, it's sort of building upon, I love your uh, phrase, unleashing capacity, um, but 
thinking about that um, reminds me of the, uh, you know, the mobile industry and how they have gone into areas where there wasn't traditional infrastructure. So totally away from, you know, the large cities where, where, where everybody's been building infrastructure, but going away from uh, where infrastructure is. And, you know, now in, in many places, mobile technology came before the landline uh, was ever uh, connected to the village. And uh, now, you know, microbanks, business, new businesses, new capabilities, new uh, opportunities have been brought to those more remote areas. Um, what What are your thoughts or what activities are you uh, or would you like to see that um, this, this the new technologies, electric aircraft, UAS could bring to uh, the more remote parts of the world? Yeah, definitely electric, uh, a much more electric or hybrid electric aircraft. Uh, autonomous cargo to reach cargo operations into many parts, pickup and delivery, both a tremendous opportunity for autonomous cargo. Uh, right now, you basically, the way the system is set up, you know, uh, things come in, the, particularly the supply chain comes in from outside and then bigger airports and then, then truckers take it further and such. But, you know, if we have autonomous uh, cargo type aircraft, smaller size, medium size aircraft, they can go into into communities and deliveries will be a lot more efficient. So I think if we start to look at changes in supply chain would would be really interesting as a result. So definitely electric, definitely more autonomy and quieter aircraft because of the, the electric nature and such. Those are the ones, and then smaller sizes, right? The drones and, you know, of all sizes, are actually, in a way, you're customizing based on the need and not just have one type of size or one type aircraft that is always applicable going back and forth. So now we, we have a range of vehicles from drones all the way to hypersonics, uh, you know, different size and speed profiles. And that allows you to get to, um, to outside our country faster. And then inside our country, deeper into the regions where it, Aviation hasn't reached before, so I'm really excited about the prospect of going to India and coming back on a weekend, you know, without having to worry about a long flight. So that supersonic kind of flight, um, eventually hypersonic, that will be really exciting. And at the same time, in having drone delivered stuff to me uh, will be another exciting thing. You know, to 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 have a lots of uh, opportunities that support uh, our needs on demand is, is pretty cool. So I'm, I'm really thrilled about the possibilities of future growth in aviation. And the other reason that I'm thrilled, not just the diversity and the density, but then it requires a different airspace system and it requires a whole new supply chain network to support the aviation and to support the airspace operations. And that's where a lot of research and ability to enable those things is really uh, quite quite interesting and exciting. Would Alfonso Mangos be one of the uh, items that you'd want to uh, get delivered and uh, be introducing a new supply chain for? <laughs> that, that's a great question. So, I went to uh, high school in a place called Ratnagiri. Uh, that's on the coastal town on on the on the western side of India, and 
this this place is famous for Alfonso mangoes. Um, so I, I would love to see my, actually I have several friends who grow mangoes there and I always uh, long to, to visit them and, and enjoy it. Some of them keep uh, mango ice cream for me. Anytime I go there, like there's Alfonso mango ice cream ready, you know, but it, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. But so I, I really would like to see Alfonso mangoes come out here very uh, more, um, you know, faster. Uh, this this example I offered is because they had to harvest them sooner. They, they do come here now in the United States. You get Alfonso mangoes, but they had to harvest um, earlier, and then you know they had to treat to make sure that they they protect their quality and such. But if you're able to harvest just at the right time and bring them, you know, that would be awesome. You know, so. Yeah, certainly uh, would be a great experience. Uh, what I've heard is all positive, but uh, I don't think I've ever had the pleasure of um, Alfonso Mango yet. So, um. the, yeah, I mean, you had to come with me and Raj to uh, <laughs> to to basically India, and, and and Ravi and I can basically take you to the number of places there, uh, or you can visit us in California in summer. When there's plenty of uh, shops that carry Alfonso mangoes. <laughs> Excellent. So um, in terms of interesting and, uh, you know, I think we all share the vision you're, you're, you're painting, but uh, maybe COVID aside, what, what do you see some of the biggest challenges that we, we, we face um, in trying to make some of this more of a reality or even what are some of those challenges that we, we, we need to overcome to take the next step and, yeah, that's a great question. So one, first challenge is making sure that the battery uh, uh, and the electric propulsion, the battery is ready to last uh, uh, more than 45 minutes of flight or so. So we need we need continued work on battery to get getting the density, energy density better and longer. And so that's one for sure. Second is the noise, associated noise has to be acceptable for communities, particularly if we are looking for this omnipresent pervasive aviation, then it's gotta be much more quieter and and such than the helicopters are so that we don't get hit with the same type of constraints. Mm. Uh, and then, and of course, affordability and such. Airspace integration to enable the scale while maintaining the safety. So the validation and verification of advanced systems, particularly autonomous systems. I'll give an example, you know, Autoland. If you want this the, this kind of future, then the, there will be a lot more aircraft. Let's assume that. That means you need um, automated or some shape of automated airspace management system, air traffic management system that does not burden the current air traffic control system. So as soon as you start to talk about automated system, then you say what functionality I need to have in the aircraft and what functionality I need to have in the rest of the outside, whether it's cloud-based or ground-based. And let's assume that you want to be able to go in and out of vertiports uh, unhindered or in an automated manner, then you need a sophisticated auto land capability, one that assures that when you are landing, you're not going to interfere with anybody or there is nobody else on the 
QWERTY pad when you are about to land. Uh, so those things are important. Then you have a question, what is the right way to apportion the functionality? How much functionality I should have on the cockpit for auto land? How much functionality I should have on the infrastructure on the ground QWERTY pad and how much in the airspace technology itself? So that distribution is important. And then if you are putting more technology on the cockpit, how do you make sure that it's safe and it's validated and verified? So the new methods to assure the safety of automated or autonomous systems becomes important. Another area is contingency management and off-nominal conditions. We all have seen the Sully Sullenberger event. What happens when we have a bird strike for these vehicles? Uh, is the vehicle going to be able to assess its own health and decide what is the right thing to do, prognostic detection, prognostic to say, I should land right away, or I can go to the next vertipad that's out there a couple of minutes away, uh, or uh, that vertipad is booked, or the, another vertipad is closer, but it has a high wind, so I need to have a connected system that one that informs me about what I should be doing. So not only you want to know this, your health of your own aircraft and the status, but also outside conditions. So this requires a connected system. So building that connected system with the resiliency is important. And once you start to operate, you also need to have a good maintenance repair overall network because you know these vehicles would need MRO maintenance every now and then, like our cars do. And you go to a garage or you go to a dealer, and then they have parts inventory available someplace, and they have maintenance technicians. So how do you make sure that we have our entire ecosystem set up? Now that's the back end. On the front end, when you start to scale these vehicles. In terms of production, we need to make sure that first we have access to suppliers. Second, we have resiliency. So we have multiple suppliers of, of critical parts. And third is you are able to scale them uh, so that uh, you're not going to have a log jam of the type and number of suppliers that are needed to support the industry in its mature state. So talk about the supply chain a little bit. Aerospace, I would I would say, has a rather unique supply chain, especially compared to adjacent industries of, of transportation manufacturing. What do you see as some of the, the, the key considerations the industry needs to really figure out to be able to produce vehicles at scale? Yeah, so when you look at the supply chain for aerospace, let's look at the numbers first. So there are 78 to 79 million cars that were produced in 2018. In terms of Boeing and Airbus together, they made about 1,600 aircraft large times, about 1,000 helicopters and, 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 and such. So in, in the United States, there were 2.8 million cars made. In order to get to that level of supply chain of scalability, it's going to take a while for urban air mobility or advanced air mobility type of aircraft. So the, what's happening now is there are, I broke it down into three segments. The first is a very near-term, early-stage challenge of supply chain. So what happens is these vehicle manufacturers are designing, prototyping. This is a pre-certification phase. I call it pre-certification phase. They're designing, modifying, prototyping, and such. They want access to supplies. They want over-molding parts. They want motors. They want battery. But they only want onesies, twosies, because they're still working on their design. They're not looking to buy hundreds of thousands 
of parts. Finding access to suppliers who can only give, able to give one or two or three or 10 parts is a challenge because in supply chain, the, the best way to organize it is many to many. So you need to have many vendors, many customers, and many suppliers, then the resiliency builds. So we want these smaller scale job shop production companies who can actually work closely with these OEMs and tinker with the design and iterate it on a one-to-one -one basis on smaller scale. So that, that capacity exists. However, those folks are so small that they don't always know the existence and need of aerospace. And the aerospace guys, may not know who they are and where they are located. I've talked to many people, some of them are Michigan and Florida and California. They say, oh, we didn't know that this is needed. Uh, so first thing we would like to do is build an electronic exchange platform that connects the suppliers with other suppliers and suppliers with OEMs and OEMs with suppliers. So reduce the friction of finding each other. And then you can add on top of that the aviation certificated uh, merits and credentials and things like that. Yeah. So that's the first stage, early stage, pre-certification. So in, in, in the traditional aviation supply chain, we don't have a many-to-many -many environment. We have a pyramid. We have many-to-few, and then few, if we're talking about commercial aviation, few-to-two, right? It's Boeing or Airbus. Yeah, and uh, and and part partly, I'd argue that's not just a, a visibility problem that's been shaped through mergers, acquisitions, and, and ultimately politics. And do you see that changing in the UAM and UAS world? The UAM and UAS, we definitely see that uh, it's the capital is needed is high, but not as high as the larger aircraft. See, when you you are making a larger aircraft, that capital is in order magnitude different than what's needed for small drones. Okay. So you could have multiple drone companies, and just take the example: we have small drone companies, many of them, and they could actually, you know, you can take names: Matternet, Zipline, Skydio, Google, Amazon, and many others. You know. Sure. Um. So they all are going to need supply chain. The, the vertical integration is not very effective in the long term. In the beginning, you might be able to do that with and protect your IP and such. If you don't find suppliers, you're stuck with vertical integration. But in the long term, that is not the most effective part. So, so going back to the you know, the, so there's a pre-certification early stage, you know, and then that's where you basically look at smaller shops, the job shop production, and relate with them. After certification, your volume increases a little bit. You have production certification, but it's still not a mature stage. So you at that point, you are interested not only the first phase was access to these suppliers. Second phase is access plus resiliency. I want to make sure that I have more than one battery and more than one um, bearing, ball bearing. I, there are examples when one ball bearing company goes on strike and some of the aircraft manufacturers are delayed by months. There are examples when the casing company has trouble and all engine manufacturers have trouble and that impacts the, the larger OEMs. So we need to make sure there's a resiliency built in. You know? So one of the key parts of supply chain is always is not depend only on the sole source. You know, Few suppliers is a good strategy to build relations and such, but you also need resiliency. And we learned this in COVID too. Again, relearned it pretty much. Um, yeah. So that's the mid, uh, middle phase of 
making sure that after the access, we have resiliency built in. And the third phase is mature. Now the industry takes off and thousands of aircraft flying. They all are going to need, basically all these OEMs are going to need scale. Uh, whatever that scale happens to be. Now it, it will take a long time to get to the car type of scale. You know, even just look at 3 million cars in the United States and there's a hypothesis that 10% of them could be replaced by EV tolls. As an example, that's 300,000. That's, that's a lot of aircraft, which we haven't seen per year for, you know. So that kind of production scale would require a different type of supply chain. One that includes not just access and scalability, the first two phases, but the third is then the access and uh, uh, resiliency, but the third is the scalability uh, on top of that. Yet, it's still not the car type of manufacturing scale. So the car companies may be interested in supporting that, uh, and they they had to understand the, the tolerances are different, the temperatures are different, the forces are different. So they might get into it, but it's not the same type of millions and millions of parts produced at the same time. You know, so it's a little different. Aviation is a different supply chain model than the car companies. Of course. So what I see is somewhere in between the cars and larger OEMs like Boeings and, and helicopters, which only make a thousand or so per year. So this will be somewhere in between it's, it's in its mature state uh, for, for at least foreseeable future. After, you know, who knows what happens 30 years from now. But you, we need to build that entire supply chain, you know, to, to make sure that this industry is healthy and the risk to its growth is reduced. We have examples of small drone industry not having a supply chain suffered early stages. Uh, aircraft like Eclipse suffered, you know. So there are always we want to learn from history and make sure that we build. If I may just ask one quick question. So thanks for the uh, the very clear overview of the differences between the automotive and the, the aerospace supply chain. Um, but as the UAS uh, supply chain is maturing, going through those stages you just described, is is there an opportunity to leverage additive manufacturing as a, a means to maybe more rapidly prototype, maybe bring in different materials, uh, new new companies come into it to whether uh, to deliver the resiliency or deliver the scalability? Just define, define what additive manufacturing means in case not every one of our listeners is familiar with the term. Okay, so I, I, I mean, I guess more... Uh, colloquially, 3D printing, so the um, using printers and new materials to more quickly uh, produce a part, and uh, you know that's going through its own maturity growth at the moment, with um, slowly getting up to uh, more volumes. But I, I, I certainly haven't seen them looking at additive to get to the volumes that automotive will need for their critical components. But maybe there's an opportunity here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, additive is definitely very promising. I, in fact, I know a couple of companies who are working uh, in the area, and then they even supply additive parts to SpaceX and other uh, companies, even uh, even engine manufacturers. So there is definitely promise. The scalability uh, is uh, still a little bit of a challenge. The the rate at which you can pr- produce these parts, but now that will grow over time. I think it will get better and better, and we are going to see much more um, additive processes 
um, I have a friend who who's a company called Sierra Turbine, and he uses 100% additive part uh, he makes, and then he uses that. And I think there's a there's a great prospect of using additive for many 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 parts, uh, if not all. I mean, you can't do microelectronics and things like that, avionics, but you could do some of the parts that are weldable. Usually, the weldable parts of the materials are the ones you can do additive. So it's apropos that we started talking about automotive versus aerospace, right? One thing that the, the automotive industry has done, and I know aerospace company have looked at from time to time, is they've retooled entire production lines for automation, right? And, and automation combined with Kanban methodology has really driven up uh, quality and scale over the last 30 years in that, in that industry. Today, we have seen... You know, for at least from my perspective, working in aerospace, uh, very little engagement in aerospace uh, uh, companies adopting automotive scale manufacturing, and it's it's understandable as to why we don't see the 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 volume requirements drive you know the capital, and a lot of production lines uh, are decades and decades old. Right, which which means it'd be very very difficult to change them. Where we're not designing like here's the, you know, here's the 1999 model year and here's the 2000 model year, and every seven years we're going to start from scratch with a whole new production line and a whole new design. First and foremost, do you see, in addition to additive manufacturing and other techniques, do you see automation as being a critical enabler of? achieving the scale that, that, that we envision for this, this new segment of the industry? And if so, how do you see uh, aerospace companies successfully integrating and, and enabling automation? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think this is where automation can be really useful in terms of maintaining the quality. So the aerospace has specific requirements for quality management. Uh, and production certification processes and such. So, you know, the, the, there are many standards, SAEI, so and all those things that talk about those. One of the ways you can actually leverage automation is to maintain that quality for, uh, for process control, consistency of the process and the quality and assurance of the quality and checkouts uh, would be something that we can actually very well use automation for um, also uh, aftermarket parts. So if you are actually able to produce them in a consistent manner, the OEMs can also get into the aftermarket business. Uh, in aviation, aftermarket is a challenging thing because sometimes you see um, not authenticated parts and the, those parts uh, can cause some serious safety critical issues. Or sometimes you see supplier not quite knowing or realizing the importance of certain types of coating, changing the coating, and that changes the property, and that can cause significant challenge. So having automation that is actually check not only maintaining the process, but also doing quality control uh, is really important. I mean, for assuring that the supply chain and the supplier, suppliers as well as the parts are adhering to that standard and maintaining that quality that is expected. That's a, that's a really very, I think, important point. So, you know, a question I know 
um, a number of friends and colleagues have, and as I've asked this and discussed this with them, is a viable uh, ecosystem achievable without some breakthrough in chemistry, you know, an Einstein level breakthrough in chemistry around energy density and battery technology, or is there viability in looking at other means of next generation propulsion and fuel methods? So we'll talk about just in the last couple of months, right? A major new initiative was just launched uh, around hydrogen. What's your take on that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not an expert in the battery technology or the propulsion technology at large, but I do know that where I see an opportunity for uh, NASA is to collaboratively work with uh, organizations like SAE and develop standards for uh, propulsion systems and what kind of standards the batteries need to adhere to, what kind of standards the electric motors and such, that will guarantee the assurance. So I think um, the, that is still interesting and on the, it's a remaining, remaining re- topic that we still have to address to say, what is the standard by which, at which the battery for aviation grade um, for the, this type of EV tall type of aircraft would have to be built to, or what kind of material and all. So while I don't know the exactly whether it's incremental evolution along the lines of batteries adequate or the Einstein moment has to come, um, I do recognize the need that we need to start to work on creating standards based on what we have and what the requirements of the eVTOL flights are going to be. So, yeah. So again, the, the last question we have on the topic and then to conclude our interview, uh, we talked about electric propulsion and I think there's a lot of research and work being done on addressing what electric propulsion looks like on the aircraft. And how do you see an electric EV tall ecosystem impacting the electric grid and the infrastructure to support it? And what are the supply chain and quality assurance needs there? Yeah, that's a great question. So. Some folks, uh, several organizations, I would say, have done some analysis to recognize that the current electric grid may not be adequate to support electric charging needs if the char- if the aviation takes off the way we envisioned uh, for drones and EV tops. If it's it's happening in the millions, then they would need the charging and such, and that, that may or may not uh, you know, be ready for a long while. Now, the 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 good part of that is that's not going to happen overnight. So I think we have a time to keep growing and as part of the supply chain that I mentioned, you know, how do we actually make sure that the operation side of maintenance, repair, overall, and charging and the infrastructure also grows to accommodate the increases that are likely into this aviation. but it will not happen overnight, so we will have to build uh, basically pretty much block by block, depending on where, let's say, if they start in L.A. or Dallas or some other place, Tampa or Ohio, uh, North Carolina, wherever they start, we start to work and go with it. You know, So I think we will have some good opportunities to use the pilot project kind of a construct 
and learn from it, you know, like they did for drones uh, called un Unmanned Aircraft System uh, Pilot Project, UPP. FAA had 10 sites and such. So I think there may be opportunities to actually push some pilot projects to explore how the whole ecosystem and evolution of aircraft, aerospace technology and infrastructure will come together. One of the things we did inside NASA is we built a model like you have model for autonomy we and, and a scale for autonomy. We did a model and scale for urban air mobility maturity levels that includes aircraft, airspace, and infrastructure ecosystem from one to one to six. So one is very beginning, low density, low diversity, and such. And four is medium density, medium diversity, medium complexity type of operation. So I think that's one way we can do that because it's going to evolve over time. But definitely that's something we are going to have to keep an eye on is whether if it starts to take off, when do we need that electric supply chain uh, distribution supply chain ready to support it. So, Dr. Pika, we want to thank you so much. We could be talking on for hours and hours and hours, but this was a fascinating conversation. And uh, feel free, please, stick around for the banter session. Um, and uh, I'll bring up uh, Ravi and Corey uh, to join Martin and myself and Dr. PK for uh, uh, just, you know, talk of today. Thank you so much. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, very, very informative, and um, I look forward to talking to you more about supply chain. And uh, Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's. Then I have one other question maybe for you, PK. But so, uh, well, Ravi and I were talking earlier uh, about one of the questions on the uh, uh, the list that you, you chose not to answer. Um, you, you, you handle or you deal in very complex situations all the time, and you, you, you've obviously made a fantastic career. Um, providing answers to uh, complexity. So th this challenge to you is, can you describe to Mark Roboff what a googly is <laughs> in cricket? Yeah, that, that's, that's a challenge. Uh, that's a complex problem. I'm not sure I have. A okay. <laughs> <laughs> to me, to me, I mean, I grew up a baseball fan and then sort of yes. distanced myself. It's a curveball of a different okay. kind. All right. There you go. Yeah. Hey, can I ask a quick question? Uh, yeah. That was ahead, a good Ron. one, yeah, Mark. And we can ask him about whether he likes Chepok Stadium or Eden Gardens better. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> no, he's he's from uh, Mumbai, right, yeah, yeah. so it, it'll it'll be a different Mumbai, one. Yeah, yeah. 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 One KD or yeah. Right. True. So, uh, quick one. I just I I heard yeah. your answer to that uh, electric grid problem. I think I want to add one little bit to that, which is China has 60% of its electricity coming from coal. India has mm -hmm. 55 or so. Uh, we here have about uh, 20, I think now. So in addition to increasing generating capacity, we'll have to get off these fossil fuels. I mean, these really dirty fuels. So yeah, it's yeah. going to be a big challenge. Have you thought? Has NASA yeah, that's thought going about to be a big that? problem. Yeah. yeah, that's a great, great question. I think I mean, some we probably need to do that. But we were uh, working with Black and Vasich, I think uh, the, the the electric grid grid guys, and they were analyzing. We haven't analyzed it. We need to. That's a good question, though, about what would be the impact of emissions uh, if we are going to continue to use coal. 
that's crazy. I mean, that that's uh, some members might like that, but what alternatives do we have? You know, we had to try to push solar, wind, or nuclear. You know. Yeah, wind uh, is becoming that, very. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, wind is becoming popular here. I don't know how quickly it is going to substitute. I mean, take over from in uh, from mm-hmm. these other fuels in China and India. Yeah, where where are you located, Ravi? I am in uh, Connecticut. Okay, so the wind is popular there, huh? That's yes, it is. In in Connecticut, it is. We are doing some offshore, at least on offshore. I think we have the only major offshore installation now in wow. Massachusetts and uh, Connecticut. But uh, so wait, it's, that's awesome. So by offshore, do you mean on the Long Island Sound? Yeah, it's on Block Island, that area. Oh, okay, sure. Or in so, the UK, the all of the North yes. Sea, the British North Sea, have become wind farm now because it's too expensive really? to pump Brent wow. oil out of our section of the North Sea. So, yeah, um, so yeah there's there's a there's a growing offshore wind farm uh, industry, but you know, there's still the challenge of then okay, now you've generated the uh, the electricity where there's a population density of one, and uh, that's now <laughs> got to transport it. So no, well that population that's the population density of Kansas because I can't drive between two cities here without seeing a without going through a wind farm. So oh, really, mm. oh yeah. Yeah, which is good, but at least yeah. in the U.S., it's all connected. The grids are completely connected actually, North, in North America. There are three distinct grids in this country. It's a little right. bit of Trivial Pursuit trivia I have. The East Interconnect, the West Interconnect, and Texas. Texas has its own grid. And it's a, the, the story goes that Texas has its own grid so that if Texas does ever enact succeed. their right to succeed, you know, they'll be self-sustaining from day one. <laughs> <laughs> but they do trade between these grids. They do. Yes. Uh, ostensibly. It's a, so it's the a other thing question. that I heard uh, you saying about the wattage of these electric uh, aircraft, we were doing some calculation, a friend of mine and myself. An average U.S. home does not take more than about a kilowatt of power. That's hmm. the rate at which you're spending it on the average. <laughs> a Tesla is probably 40 kilowatts. An aircraft, uh, one of these air traffic things, we're talking 200 or 300 kilowatts. So wow. that is 300 times households, 300 households worth of electricity <laughs> is going to be pumped into one of these. Hey, so oh, PK, wow. one thing, you moved uh, to... Um, you mo- you moved to the west coast because uh, Cincinnati was too cold or what? No, uh, Cincinnati. After Cincinnati, I went. I I started working for FIA Technical Center. That was in New Jersey. Oh, and okay. So month, that was yeah. Rotocraft, right? Uh, no, it's sort of like a air traffic management test and evaluation and simulation that kind of stuff. It's in Atlantic City, and my wife finished her fellowship at UPenn. Then we were like, okay. This is our last chance to move to West Coast, or otherwise we'll never move. Right? Once <laughs> my wife is a doctor, so once we, she settles down, then we that's it. We're sitting there, you know. That makes sense. So we uh, FA kind of finagled something, you know, to uh, that worked out in a fortunate way that they they had a job here, and then we just came out here, you know. And then first we sort of we tried out a couple of years, you know, but then we liked it and we decided to stay 
there is another long conversation we need to have how we bought our home because that that was an easy process either but <laughs> that's a long story we'll talk about next next time when we meet uh-huh. that's that's a that's an amazing story to you know it's a nasa retired person you know uh, okay. kind of selling yeah it, it's a pretty cool story yeah it's worth worth okay. knowing about how people help how the people uh, uh, help each other you know that's wonderful yeah. What about uh, I, I was just talking to Mark earlier today. Wh- why do people move to California? <laughs> oh, I gave, I gave oh. you. <laughs> If you don't have earthquakes, you have fires. If you don't have fires, you have Santa Ana winds. If you don't have that, you have something else. Where PK lives, they have Diablo winds. He's Northern California. I'm Southern California. But yeah, that should be very true. interesting. So when I give Angeles. two very different answers. Uh-huh. And, and we have high property taxes and uh, That's true. everything else. <laughs> so I don't know you guys. But the weather is nice. The weather is nice. Said the Midwest enough. Yeah. I grew up the in... Well, the weather's nice for about a five-foot strip along the coast. <laughs> you get in board of that, you get in inland of that, it gets up to like a ni- you know, 95 degrees. So. <laughs> All right. So when I moved from... I grew up in the New York City area. I spent, right. aside from my four years uh, going to school in Pittsburgh, I spent my whole life in New York. You know, we moved out to California and we settle into our neighborhood in Irvine and we go to the local grocery store, Ralph's. You know, Ralph's is a, it's, 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 it's Kroger. It's, it's nothing special. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we pick up a bag of grapes and uh, just, just to have some food in the house as we begin to unpack. <laughs> Um, and we open the grapes. They're you know, California grapes. And my gosh, they're like the best grapes we've ever had. Right. There's something about, for me, there's something about the land out here. There, there's, there's something about uh, being, it's the, it's the air, it's the topography, it's the, the soil. It just, if things feel better out here. And maybe it's just me personally growing up, you know, in the East Coast, I hate humidity, I had terrible spring allergies. Maybe my whole life I was, you know, screaming out for a dry climate. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I suppose to each his own medicine. Yeah. Or poison, rather. <laughs> <laughs> That leads into something I, I kind of wanted to talk about, because uh, uh, Dr. P.K. had, had mentioned in, in his talk about you know the new aviation and and what UAM was going to do uh, and how that, how that whole industry and how that's going to drive uh, where people live, you know, and, and the, the distribution of... of of how of where people live yeah. in the future and you know the whole thing with corona tide here uh there was a an article in the new york post like two months ago it was a it was a actually an essay that they had republished and it with a with a really really bad post title of new york of nyc is dead for good or something like that you know <laughs> typical kind of post title but it was a really actually a, a really interesting essay and it came across it it put across the idea that that a lot of businesses are moving out of New York City and won't be moving back because bandwidth is better and you don't have to have people at a critical mass to do a lot of office job do to to do office type work anymore i had occasion uh to look at property values and mortgage prices in urban areas in the, over the last couple of months And for for reasons that I won't go into, but knowing what I'm paying for a mortgage here in Wichita, Kansas, and I understand it's Wichita, Kansas, but knowing that 
what I'm paying for a mortgage, I would have to pay three times as much for a decent one bedroom apartment in downtown Boston. That leads to the question, you know, is, is the whole urban air mobility thing, is that is the population density model going to change now just because of the of the effects of coronavirus and yeah. the effects of increased bandwidth that the people have mm-hmm. available? I mean, it's is it easier? Is, is it going to be if you can get the cr- cost down? If the if we can get a propulsion technology, electrical propulsion technology, you can get the cost down that you can make smaller jumps and you don't have to rely on hub hub and spoke uh, air travel so much. I mean, that would be a a good thing, but otherwise it's just, yeah, kind of, yeah. are we going to get to the point where business travel kind of goes away in general? Yeah. And I think people, are, you know, some people say the business travel will go down, but others are saying that, it, nah, the Embraer guy is always saying, no, businesses will still want to make deals, hustle, you know, play golf with each other, whatever. Uh, I'm not in that category, but you know, who knows? Well, yeah. I see Mark shaking his head there because I, 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 I dared what? say that that's something about the death of New York. And so he's got to. No, gonna no, it's the business travel thing. So I've, I've been, I, I haven't had an office. I haven't gone to an office in 10 years. Um, and yet we find, I think all my colleagues, I mean, I used to travel a ton, right? We can, we can do our work on Zoom. We can do our work on Teams, right? But, but we lose so much that uh, people are going to be yearning. As soon as it's safe to go out, people will be yearning for face-to-face. Yeah. yeah, but Mark, you are not the typical worker. Maybe You're not. not the typical white-collar worker. I was a road warrior. I was a typical road warrior. I was right. that American executive platinum and that Delta Diamond, right, both at the same time may not be so typical. Yeah, but yeah, I, don't, I don't think that's typical. But no, but 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 I, I'm part of that class that, you know, as the saying goes, um, we were the 20% of the flying population that would drive uh, 80% of an airline's profit. Um, so, you know, so for us road warriors, you know, you go on something, you go on to like wiretalk.com and, you know, sort of take the, take the voice of that segment. I think people are, are, are going to find their way back sooner or later. And as another road warrior, I totally echo Mark's comments, but similarly this week, speaking to my client, they're being slowly driven crazy because they cannot do their work within their own company mm-hmm. as efficiently as they can because you now have an hour to talk through a fairly contentious topic to get to um, a group decision that everybody's going to move forward with. It's not going to happen. You, know, you, you, you can't just condense all of that policy. the flip side the condensation is so critical so mark, yeah mark and martin the flip side is utc just announced in in including 20000 mm-hmm. layoffs they're going to get rid of some 7 million square feet of office space and some ridiculous yeah, amount I, of uh, office, office space so they I, have realized fine. that that's fine, but, but you look at I mean, has, has you know one in one in I don't know one in five one in ten office space outside of you know Valdorf headquarters where there there is a large concentration of um, SAP staff outside of that everybody or not a very the vast majority of people are 
uh, are remote workers. So mm-hmm. absolutely, you can, get, you can cut down your travel expense, you can cut down your real estate expense. That doesn't mean to say that everybody in every job is going to be more productive and more efficient. Correct. No, and, and I wouldn't suggest that either. I think I think back to Corey's original hypothesis, or at least what I heard was, you know, COVID is going to significantly change things. As would, because um, Mark and I haven't travelled for nine, you know, seven eight months now. So yes, there, there's a significant change. I'm sitting in Wisconsin on a Wednesday at the place I love to be, rather than at O'Hare wondering if my plane's going to be on time. So yes, there's going to be a definite change, but I also think that electric aircraft, UAM, uh, you know, the, the the mobility and the ability to do work in different locations absolutely is going to be a... a and to your point, Corey, I, I'm, I'm an hour and a half, well, two and a half hours from, from New York City. Almost every other day, I'm getting calls from realtor wondering whether we're going to sell. The reason was really? a couple of years ago we were we were looking to sell, so we had talked to somebody, and now they have that uh, in their database. So we didn't people, sell at that time. We wanted to, so we decided to stay here, but now they're just mm-hmm. calling us. And the reason is that people from you're absolutely right. New York City residents are moving to Connecticut and other places. Right. So, uh, what I was thinking is you know, with real estate prices so high and the whole. It, it, there's a certain misery with living in New York City, as I as I understand it. I, I've, I've literally been to New York City for a grand total of nine hours in my life. Um, but I was in New York City. wasn't I'm not counting like sitting at JFK. I was actually in downtown Manhattan um, for that nine hours. But but yeah, there's a certain from the people that I know, friends I know that live there. There's a certain misery that you just kind of accept being there. And they were they were entertainment industry people. So you know you know. You go there, and that's what they do to bring you in. Is to, and they say, you know what, you can put up with with the subways, you can put up with the congestion, you can put up with the high prices because you, you know, because you're at the center of Western civilization. And sorry to London uh, for that, but you know, <laughs> you're the de facto. Boy, you're you're, facto you're really going off. Yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, we got to generate got to generate some clicks somehow. Um, so yeah, we're uh, sorry, <laughs> but. Now, looking at um, with UA, getting back to UAS, not so much UAM, but UAS, where you have delivery services trying to certify things left, right, and center. And, you know, you can call and get anything uh, delivered. It's like you have these places that are high population and and are the centers of, um, you know, the centers of, of all these different cultural of all this culture. You know, in New York City, you have between theater and food and TV you know, LA the same way, San Francisco has its own thing. You know, like when we went up for G34, you, you know, my whole gig was, I got to go to Yountville. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I have to go over. So we're going up to true. that, yep. but awesome. Drop me up at Yountville, yep. pick me up on your way back. Um, a lot of that was you had to go to those places to get the materials and to get the association with other people in your field and to get the education, you're kind of stuck there. Like plenty of chefs, when they talk about, well, I had to go to London so that I could really get better. I had to go to Paris so I could really get better. And now you don't need to do that so much. I mean, yeah, the hands-on, there's no, and I want to back off a second. There is no replacement for, for face-to-face interaction when you're either making a business deal or you're talking about an engineering issue or you're learning how to do 
or somebody's teaching you how to do something, you know, there, there's, there's no replacement for being in there with them, but you can do an awful lot of the follow-up stuff from a distance now. So, and, and with, with, with delivery services, the way they are and the way UAS is going to keep going, I I can get anything that I can, I can outfit my kitchen here within the week, however I wanted, if I had a big enough check. So, and I can have whatever I could have my Alfonso mangoes shipped in if I could, you know, assuming, assuming I could, I could take a little bit of preservatives on it without much issue either. So the barriers to places that, that have their own unique characteristics and, and it might become more attractive, especially because they're cheaper to live. I, you know, like I, like I was saying before, I'm comparing living on a half acre, I, my, my mortgage living on a half acre lot in Wichita, Kansas versus a one bedroom apartment in, in downtown Boston. And if I can do the same work here versus there, <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I want my gar- I want to go back out outside to my garden and, you know, yeah. So we'll say to, I'm gonna, Northern I'm gonna, California has lost a lot of people, I believe. And, you know, I know Texas, Florida, um, Tennessee, all the states that have zero state income tax have mm-hmm. had property. Well, that's because Northern California is irrational. <laughs> well, but I mean, it's it's just another from a market, another fact point to uh, support Corey's. So I don't really have, uh, yeah, I don't really have a thesis. It's just more of, a, of an observation. Is this something that's going to happen? There are plenty but, of PhD work going on in this. I'm, I'm sure they're researching this all over the place. Mm-hmm. This is actually very, this is urban planning. And when you link it up with the political divisions in this country and how they overlay on the, on the type of house you live in, that really means that a lot of people are researching this. So my father, who who did is uh, who pursued a PhD in uh, population flows from urban mm-hmm. to suburban and back, right? Would have a lot to say. I'll, I'll say, uh, as an urbanite, you know, I was born on Fourteenth Street, uh, you know, and and for most of my life was the biggest evangelist and defender of New York um, until I, you know, per per Corey's. Uh, uh, musings here sort of got fed up and left for um, the, in many ways, sort of the antithesis of New York, but in some ways not. An urban environment provides more than just, uh, you know, on-demand delivery of stuff. It, it creates the uh, human conditions for creativity and spontaneity. And you could argue that that some of that is now being served through you know, digital means, but you know, it comes back to the question of how much is being served through digital means. You know, the fact that um, COVID's introduced a new uh, flight from urban environments, um, there's a silver lining there. It's going to become now cheaper to live in places like New York and San Francisco and Boston, which means that there'll be a new generation that moves in and brings together uh, really a new creative energy that produces a whole new suite of music, film, right, restaurants, agree. right? It's the, and, 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 you know, the right word is, it is, it's energy. Right? Sorry, uh, Corey, I'm a, I'm an urbanite man through and through. Yeah, it's an energy. Yeah, Most New Yorkers, I, you talk about, you know, people saying, oh, it's going to be miserable to live in New York. Find me a New people Yorker that wouldn't say it would be miserable to live in Kansas. Live. 
Right. Well, I know. I, I know. A Kansan who so moved God, to New York I, and then found it miserable enough, and then they moved to Providence. But you know, <laughs> oh, Providence isn't quite the same. Providence right. is pretty urban. It is pretty urban. Providence so I live, is pretty. T- I, I, I live in downtown in Chicago. Yeah, go, go ahead. I'm sorry. I have go ahead, Martin. a place in northern Wisconsin, and I, I love both of them. Yeah, but there's different things, and right. you know, the to everything that Mark was saying. Yeah, the choices now, for restaurants in downtown Chicago are immensely more than me driving two miles to pub that will throw a frozen burger onto a grill and then charge me for it so the you know it's, it's what you're looking for if you want I but they like you there they yeah. know you intimately there Pubs they know, you intimately they, in they know me intimately in chicago too but it's true. it's just right. a, you, you pub it's crawler you way. and i can i could I, there was a deer I, if i'd had an arrow and a bow you know, not not sort of two and a half hours ago, I could have been eating fresh venison tonight if I'd wanted to, just because there was a deer eating a season. Yeah, remember Martin? Yeah, remember I took you to Angel Share when we were in New York uh, for the. I, uh, and that was I would never have gone there if I hadn't been taken there by somebody who knew the place. Yeah, can you imagine ancient something like that existing in Wichita, Kansas? Oh, yeah, it should be so something like that exists in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan. <laughs> So, right. Well, and but, I t- but no, I mean, the, but, but as an but idea, are, it could exist anywhere. It could exist anywhere. Yeah. There, yeah. well, that's kind of my, that's reaching to my point. I mean, you're getting a, a whole energy. That energy you speak of is, is really moved out of the urban centers. And there's a Maybe. lot of people who are, mm-hmm. who are attempting, who are, who are making the attempt. Maybe they're not that good yet. Maybe they're not Thomas Keller yet, but they're, but they're, you know, but they're, they're trying. They've got good taste, and they're and they're, and they're keep working yeah. at it. Now, so, yeah, yeah. And, and I gotta tell you, okay, since I'm the minority opinion here, you know, I, we we hate New York. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I won't put too fine a, pi- a point on it. Not not just the Yankees, but also the Mets, and and it's uh-uh. and it's just. I'm sorry. It's it's the, like yeah. for every for every three star rest in New York, there's a, there's a dozen holes in the wall that aren't serving frozen beef, you know, that that are doing what they do just as well that nobody is ever going to hear out because here hear of because right. they're in Yoder, Kansas. That's you true. Know, it, it, yeah. You still so, hate and, the and we know that we show. see that, but you can't tell a New Yorker that because you know they'll, they they'll, suck the air out of the room. <laughs> which is why I like whenever the whenever the the whole. Yeah. Since we got New York and Chicago, you know, represented here, whenever I, I see people get into the whole New York pizza versus versus Chicago pizza well, debate, I was, I was like to throw, yeah, well, no, I'm about to throw the yeah. grenade in that. Well, it was Wichita yeah. Pizza that took over the world. The pizza Hut was started by uh, by Wichita State University engineering student, ah, as a matter of fact. Oh wow! The, the original building is on our campus. Right, so I would not, but I would not equate, I, it, I would not equate I, I, I New York pizza or Chicago pizza, pizza with Pizza in Hut. In the last ten years, Either Martin, are, are, are you, life, but... Martin, are you originally from London or the London area? Uh, so I, I was born in London. I went to university in London, but uh, I'm a British Army brat, so I spent uh, half my young life in Germany, half my young life in various garrison towns around uh, the UK. So London is a home or I I love London. Home is Salisbury sort of in the Southwest of England. So so Martin, New York versus London, if you had to pick one. Uh, I I would, 
and this is totally uh, emotion London. Um, I love New York, but uh, you know, I've got friends in London. I right, I could take fair. you to somewhere in London as opposed to in New York. I'd say, hey, Mark, where are we going? Because yep. you know, to to Curry's point, and I think knowing somebody in any area makes that area so much more interesting. Doesn't matter whether it's urban, suburban you know, rural, um, the somebody saying, oh, you know, the, 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 the jewel in the rough over here is this one. So let's go. And you have a fun, fun time. You're there with somebody. It's that whole mixture of experience. It's the experience rather than it just being spot A or spot B. And, um, you know, I know many people have had awful experiences in Chicago and so, I understand it's the fans of the place. So. I gotta agree. I had a I, between my two my experience in New York and my experience in London. I had a much better experience in London because I had somebody around. It's like, okay, come follow me over here. And we, right. we, I did an entire day in London and, ha- and had an absolute blast and saw absolutely nothing of the usual, um, usual tourist spots. We saw I'll, nothing. I'll say this, Corey. <laughs> I, I am, I am confident, very confident that I could take you to New York. And change your opinion of New York. Uh, I, and I'll I'll take that challenge. All right, then. I support then, Mark. Yeah. Well, let's let's when when we can post COVID. Let's you know. Well, we're all going to go to New York, Chicago, Irving, yeah, yeah. Wichita, New Delhi. Take uh, take me to per se. New Delhi. I I yeah. don't know if it's back I, up. I, I, we're going go, to we're gonna go. We're going to go as well, but. So I'll say this. I mean, to say I'm not, you know, there's a lot wrong with New York, you know, and, and, and I also, um, having traveled the world scoff at, you know, the traditional New York view that they are the center of the universe or that they are the best city in the world. I don't think by any measure, New York's the best city in the world. I think Tokyo is the best city in the world, but, uh, you know, New York has, again, it comes back to the energy going for it. Right. Which, you make a good point there. Irvine, like Irvine is, is a great town. It master planned. It's clean. It's easy. Everything's at your fingertips. And right. Uh, to those that look at, you know, cities to provide certain types of benefits. It's, it's, it's multicultural. It's diverse. There's great food um, you know, from, from diverse cuisines, uh, great schools, but, because it's it's a it's a master planned community where every house looks exactly the same and every shopping center is planned in the same way. It lacks that energy. It also has no bars or pubs to speak of. It lacks that energy too. Um, but right. uh, energy is an important thing. So is beautiful SoCal weather. So this has been fun. And, 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 and uh, thank you everyone for listening uh, as you come and meet us and, and meet what we're all about. We didn't talk too much about artificial intelligence or, or the work we're doing in this podcast. There'll be lots of opportunity for that in the weeks and months ahead. Um, but if you like, uh, if you like airplanes and you're interested in aviation, whether you work in the industry or you're just an av geek, like all of us, all right, come and, and hang out with us we think you're gonna have a really good time thank you ravi thank you Corey. thank you martin and uh, we'll see y'all real soon thanks everybody thanks guys thank you mark thanks all thanks mark (laughs) cleared for takeoff is a product of the sae g34 podcast team theme song for this podcast was written by annie roboff and beth nielsen chapman the views expressed by the hosts of this podcast are their own 